Welcome to Ground Truth, a podcast series that explores trends and developments in environmental justice, produced in partnership with the Environmental Law Institute and Beverage and Diet. The Ground Truth series is part of the Environmental Law Institute's People, Places, Planet podcast and Beverage and Diamonds, the Environmental Law podcast. Welcome to this week's episode of the People, Places, Planet podcast. My name is Georgia Ray, and I am your host. Today, we are releasing an episode in the Ground Truth series from our partners at Beverage and Diamond, focused on environmental justice. Hilary Jacobs, an associate with Beverage and Diamond, will guide you through most of the episode. Before she begins, allow me to set the stage. Environmental justice, a concept at the crossroads of environmental protection and social justice, dates back to the civil rights movement. It is defined by the Environmental Protection Agency as the, quote, fair treatment and meaningful involvement of all people, regardless of race, color, national origin, or income, with respect to the development, implementation, and enforcement of environmental laws, regulations, and policies, end quote. Interest and urgency in advancing environmental justice, or EJ, has gained new momentum in recent years. The Biden-Harris administration has placed an unprecedented federal focus on environmental justice using a whole-of-government approach, including issuing executive orders demanding accountability and action from a broad list of federal agencies. In addition, a growing list of states continue to develop, implement, and enforce EJ-focused legislation, accelerated by the intensity at the federal level. In today's episode of Ground Truth, We will have a focused conversation on EJ on an international scale, including its relationship with human rights and climate justice issues. We will also discuss what companies can do to advance EJ, climate justice, and human rights goals around the world. Thank you, Georgia. I'm Hilary Jacobs, an associate at Beverage and Diamond. I'm very excited to be here today with two accomplished guests to unpack this super complex topic. And before we get started, I'll share a little bit about each of our guests for the benefit of our listeners. So we're lucky today to have Professor Chinti Bithanagay, who serves as the Associate Director of Environmental Law Programs at the Elizabeth Halb School of Law at Pace University. She is an expert in international environmental law, oceans law, energy justice issues, and sustainability. She is an admitted solicitor in the state of New South Wales in Australia and holds an LLM from Pace University. In addition to being an internationally published author, Professor Vithanagay has taught or teaches international environmental law at Pace University and at the George Washington University School of Law. She is currently co-chair of ABA Sears International Environmental and Resources Law Committee and was most recently recognized in Law Dragons 500 Leading Environmental and Energy Lawyers 2021 Guide. We also are lucky to have Jesse Glickstein here with us today. Jesse is the Environmental and Human Rights Council on the Global Social and Environmental Responsibility Team within the Ethics and Compliance Office at Hewlett Packard Enterprise Company, a Fortune 500 company. At HPE, Jesse advises on a wide range of environmental, energy, conflict, mineral, and human rights compliance and supply chain issues, including with respect to mandatory and voluntary disclosure obligations. 
Since Jesse joined the Global Social and Environmental Responsibility Team in 2019, HPE was awarded the 2021 Stop Slavery Award, earned the highest ranking on Know the Chains 2020 benchmark, ranked second in the 2020 Corporate Human Rights Benchmark, announced its accelerated science-based emission reduction target to become a net zero enterprise across its entire value chain by 2040, and was named by the Ethisphere Institute as one of the world's most ethical companies for four years in a row. Thank you all so much for joining us today. So the environmental justice movement we know well originated in the United States. Uh, Professor, is environmental justice recognized in international environmental law? And if so, how? Sure. Thanks, Hillary. So I guess if I had to put a short answer, it's yes, but probably not quite in the way that you would think. I would answer this with some more simpler questions. Does international environmental law use the language of environmental justice? Sometimes it does. It's not often, and it's not consistent. So when international environmental law does use environmental language, justice language, do they use the same definition as the US? No, but there are similarities, and these are based on these four elements of environmental justice that environmental justice scholars have come to recognize. Those four elements are uh, distributive justice, basically means that benefits and burdens are fairly distributed, and that access to environmental goods and services are available equitably to all. Procedural justice, which means all communities can equitably participate in government decisions about the environment. Corrective justice, which means that environmental enforcement um, and also compensation is equal across communities. And the fourth element is social justice, which basically recognizes that there are other social problems like poverty and racism that need to be tandemly addressed when it comes to achieving environmental justice. So the UN Sustainable Development Goals is one of those examples where you see international policy trying to enshrine these elements in a global agenda. But then is there an agreed definition of environmental justice in international environmental law? Not as yet. But there is an effort to do so, or well, there was an effort under the Global Pact for the Environment. The Global Pact is an international effort to codify a range of environmental law principles in a binding document. Article 11 of the pact really describes a right of access to environmental justice, where parties have a duty to ensure effective and affordable access and to administrative and judicial procedures, and including redress and remedies, so that you can challenge public authorities or private individuals when they contravene environmental law. Has international environmental law actually been influenced by the concept of environmental justice? Absolutely. You can look to regional agreements like European Aarhus Convention, which details how access to justice in environmental matters can be achieved. You can look to climate justice, which is an emerging concept that seeks to include environmental justice uh, concepts within climate actions. And this features in the Paris Agreement in its preamble. Many international environmental law agreements incorporate international environmental law principles like public participation, access to justice, prior informed consent, intergenerational equity and the principle of common but differentiated responsibilities. These are all principles that can be used to uphold the different elements of environmental justice. And of course, the EJ movement in the US also sparked other environmental movements around the world. And these raise the international profile of EJ discourse. The last thing I would also mention is that EJ emerges at the intersection of environment and human rights at the international stage. Once you recognize that virtually all human rights can be threatened by environmental damage, 
the current reliance on international human rights law to seek environmental protection is really not quite surprising. This is why we have the current effort to recognize an international human right to a healthy environment by the UN General Assembly. In fact, they're actually negotiating a draft resolution in July at the moment. And it's also important for the pursuit of environmental justice on the international scale, as is the new UN legally binding instrument on business and human rights that's also currently being drafted. Thank you so much. That's so helpful to frame this up and understand how these concepts relate to each other. Um, turning to Jesse briefly, how does your work in the corporate context involve issues that touch on on these concepts? And, and if, if you'd like to speak to how you conceptualize of environmental justice on the international scale, I welcome that as well. Yeah, so it's a pleasure to be here with you and, and with Achinti. And I think the the last com comment by Achinti is a great transition, which is this idea of the intersection of human rights and environmental issues, because that's very much a focus globally. I think this term ESG, which encompasses the concept of environmental justice, is how I view it in, in the corporate context. Some of this was laid out actually in an article co-authored by your colleagues, Stacey Halliday and Julius Redd and myself a year ago in Law 360. It was actually titled Addressing Environmental Justice as Part of ESG Initiatives. And what's really interesting is that was one year ago and it, it, it laid out the emerging regulations around supply chain human rights and environmental due diligence that's happening in Europe, mandatory reporting on forced labor, the concept of double materiality that was introduced in the EU's non-financial reporting directive, which is now morphed into the corporate sustainability reporting directive, proposals from the SEC on climate, mandatory climate disclosure, and a host of other regulations which now we've seen move in just one year to several of those proposals already working their way through the legislative process. Germany and Norway have actually passed and will be soon implementing their supply chain due diligence laws. I know that there's a lot in there and without getting too much into the weeds, it's just to say from a supply chain responsibility program perspective, which is where I'm coming from this, there's just a lot to think about, and there's a lot of compliance issues there. And I think companies now have to think about that, not in the context of voluntary frameworks or in the context of international principles, like the guiding principles on business and human rights from the UN or OECD due diligence guidance for responsible business conduct, which have been guiding companies that have been trying to be out front on these issues for a long time. Now these concepts are being enshrined in hard law, in regulations. The EU currently right now is undergoing a process to pass mandatory supply chain human rights and environmental due diligence requirements, which would mean that companies actually have a requirement to do due diligence on their supply chain and could potentially, depending on where it lands, be held liable and that's still being worked out, the degree of that. But I think that that's a really important change and it ties into environmental justice because I think another concept that Achinti mentioned was this idea of what I would call stakeholder engagement. And that's a big piece of how a company can effectively run a, a responsible supply chain program, right, is engaging with the stakeholders 
involved. And so the last thing I'll say here is I think this concept of the intersection between human rights and environmental issues, it doesn't just apply to those two areas. It also intersects with the several other areas related to the supply chain. So global trade, for example, you know, recent laws passed around forced labor, the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act just came into effect on June 21st, targeting products made in whole or part in the Xinjiang region of China. And the EU is considering right now as well, they have a call for evidence out regarding products made, extracted, or harvested with forced labor. And so I think the point I want to make is it's getting harder to separate out right these these different areas of law and i think while not specifically coined as as ej obviously ej is is a big piece of that and to achinti's point if there's an impact on the fair treatment and meaningful involvement of all people regardless of race color national origin or income you know with respect and this is the the definition from the EPA with respect to the development, implementation, and enforcement of environmental laws, regulations, and policies. I think that definition can easily be applied to a lot of the things I just mentioned. That's great. That's really helpful. And you touched on a couple of key concepts that I wanted to tease out in this conversation, you know, including the intersection between international environmental law, environmental justice human rights issues and supply chains issues. So you've touched on a lot of that, of good stuff there. And we'll come back to that in a second, but just one more question for Chinti. And that is, and I think we have um, touched on this in in some of the comments that have been made so far, but I just want to make it a little bit more expressed. So um, as the environmental justice movement has demonstrated here in the U.S., pollution and environmental burdens associated with how we live and function as a society often disproportionately impact low-income and minority communities. So again, we have touched on this a bit, but I just wanted to talk through how is this pattern recognized on the international scale? And um, are there specific countries that have taken or are taking steps on par with what the U.S. is doing on the federal level and on some of the state levels, like we have New Jersey, to address environmental justice. Thanks, Hillary. Well, at the international scale, EJ issues primarily emerge in what is often coined as this north-south divide. This tension has been something that's prevalent in international environmental law negotiations, going back to like the Stockholm Conference, which actually just celebrated its 50th anniversary. And I think Jesse here, uh, in his comments, really gave us some great examples, for instance, like forced labor and how that impacts across international scale and particularly impacting low-income countries, countries in the global south. But let me take it to another, I'll give you another example. And I think one of the related ones is probably consumption. The most wealthy 20% of the world's population consumes roughly 80% of global economic output and generates about 90% of its hazardous waste. And this is often shipped back to the global south. The north gets the economic benefits, while the resulting environmental burdens are disproportionately felt by the least developed states, low-income communities, racial and ethnic minorities, and indigenous peoples. And basically, the most vulnerable communities who contributed least to the problems, and then who lack the resources to protect themselves from harm. Uh, So you can already see that there is a clear distributive justice issue that applies on the international scale when it comes to consumption. 
The North also tends to dominate decision-making processes in international institutions. Um, you kind of look at the U.S.'s history of influence in many environmental treaty negotiations. It's kind of rather telling. Think of all the time where the U.S. would lead negotiations on an environmental treaty, only to later refuse to be bound by it. There are obviously other complication factors in the background, but it's something that we should be keeping in mind as well. Financial institutions like the World Bank and the IMF were for many years driven by Western notions of development aid provision. So the voices of the South were often not heard in the same way as the voices of the North. And while that dynamic has certainly improved over time, it remains an ongoing endeavor. As of now, we still lack proper redress options also for the harms inflicted on indigenous peoples and small island states from climate change impacts. So corrective justice in particular, developing some kind of loss and damage mechanism that properly accounts for the kinds of losses and damages that are being inflicted by human-driven climate change on these communities is still a work in progress within the implementation of the Paris Agreement, for instance. And of course, when we're thinking about social and economic justice, the Global South is a hotbed for underlying economic and social justice struggles. Much of it arises from colonial and post-colonial pasts and practices. So to this day, if you, the developed states of the North still benefit from appropriating the natural resources of the South, whether it's oil, minerals, forests, or even human labor, as Jesse described. This North-South tension persists to this day and continues to frame a lot of the international environmental law and policy negotiations. And so let me think about that second question that you said. But what's truly valuable about the concept of environmental justice, and this speaks to also, again, what Jesse said in that, you know, that definition of environmental justice can be used to, can, can be used to inform how we go about ESG. We can also use it as a framework through which to evaluate laws, policies, and practices that have a disparate impact on vulnerable communities um, across the world. You can look at different nations and how they're doing it. The U.S. is certainly not alone, but it has certainly been a clear leader in adopting the pursuit of environmental justice so explicitly, but also so holistically. One example of, however, where environmental justice began with a different starting point to the U.S. is my home country, Australia. Their environmental justice, it kind of emerged from the country's leading environmental court and judiciary, the New South Wales Land and Environment Court. This is a state-based court, but at the time of its establishment in 1980, it was actually expected to lead an emergent environmental justice system. Its chief justice, Ryan Preston, many of many folks know about him on the international scale, was a strong proponent of the role of specialist courts in delivering access to justice, which includes environmental justice. As for law and policy, think of the example of the state of Victoria in Australia as a good example. Following a review of the state's Environmental Protection Authority back in 2011, the agency was actually strongly recommended to pursue an EJ-based regulatory approach. Subsequently, it took a little bit of time for this, the Victorian government not only committed to environmental justice being an organizing principle for state environmental law reform, but when the actual legislation came out, and that was the 2017 Victorian Environmental Protection Act, it was founded on a range of principles that speak to environmental justice aims, including things like creating more meaningful ways for community participation in environmental law, the stakeholder engagement that Jesse was speaking about earlier. 
Thank you so much. Those are really great examples and helpful to conceptualize of this. And I wanted to ask you about that a little bit more before we turned back to Jesse. And I also wanted to mention one example and see if you had any thoughts on it, the Escazu Agreement, which is a regional environmental treaty among Latin American countries. And it aims to, among other things, ensure access to justice in environmental matters. So if you could just talk about that for a moment, that would be great. Sure. So with the Escazo Agreement, you're right, this is a perfect example. But I'd actually like to go back in time even further. The Aarhus Convention was developed by the United Nations Economic Commission for Europe in 1998. Now, this is a regional agreement covering mostly the EU states, but also some in Central Asia, and it has about 47 parties. It has a long name, the Convention on Access to Information, Public Participation in Decision-Making, and access to justice in environmental matters. Now, that might ring a bell because that's almost virtually the same title for the Escazo Agreement as well. But it gives you also a good sense of what this convention covers. The convention basically allows for public participation by non-state actors through procedural rights that have been granted to them by the states. The convention also allows those non-state actors to then participate in the convention's non-compliance mechanism, which makes it quite unique for an environmental agreement as well in particular, the fact that it includes these non-state actors like individuals. A similar approach was then adopted in the Escazo Agreement of 2018. And this time, it's applying to, like you said, the Latin American and the Caribbean region. These two regional agreements together, which are binding on the states who have ratified it, essentially codifies Principle 10 of the 1992 Rio Declaration. And the Rio Declaration Principle 10 sets out three fundamental principles. Access to information access to public participation, and access to justice, all of which are undeniably relevant to our understanding of what environmental justice is. I also want to mention two other international environmental instruments. In 2016, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, also known as the IUCN, they adopted the World Declaration on the Environmental Rule of Law. It advocates for building the environmental rule of law as a legal foundation for environmental justice. Now, the environmental rule of law, if you don't know what it is, is basically this legal framework, procedural and substantive rights and obligations that incorporates the principles of ecologically sustainable development in the rule of law. So the declaration then goes on to identify different general, but also emerging substantive principles that promote environmental justice. So principles like the right to a healthy environment and participation of marginalized, vulnerable and indigenous populations in environmental decision making. Now, this is not a binding document, but what it did do was it served as a foundation document for the Global Pact for the Environment. The Global Pact is the most recent effort in terms of trying to incorporate environmental justice in international environmental law in a kind of binding fashion. Unfortunately, this effort did not culminate in a binding document, but what it did do was begin a UN process of assessing the gaps that exist in international environmental law. And it was great because the UN Secretary General actually ended up producing a report on these gaps. And in it, he highlighted EJ as part of environmental democracy, a recognized principle of environmental law that lacks legal development internationally, though it has emerged regionally in those agreements like the Aarhus Agreement of Europe and the Escazo Agreement of Latin America. So that's sort of where the lay of the land is right now. Thank you so much. That's that's very helpful. I'd like to turn back to Jesse to talk for a few minutes about corporate governance for multinational companies. So Jesse, what does that look like 
when you think about environmental justice on a global scale, enterprise-wide for an organization with global operations? Yeah, sure. And I want to also just kind of pull back my initial statement. I kind of listed off just a ton of regulatory developments, and, and I know there was a lot that I said. So I just want to kind of go to a high level so folks can understand that companies are not only dealing with regulatory developments, right? We're also dealing with pressure from customers, for example, right? They might not be a legal requirement, but we're talking about market access requirements where for an RFP or a bid, there are certain questions we'll have to answer in order to actually have a shot at that bid. And those questions more and more will center around questions of responsible mineral sourcing and human rights. In addition, there are third-party benchmarks out there that are scoring companies on these different areas that relate to ESG including EJ. And there's actually some that are coming out in the near future that I'm aware of that will get much deeper into racial equity and environmental justice. So in addition to that, there are investor questions that come in around sometimes very specific questions of sales to specific customers or policies around environmental justice or other ESG-related issues. So I think that's an important context because it's not just this kind of booming regulatory regime that's that's emerging. It's these other factors as well. So I think for companies, from a corporate governance perspective, one of the most important things is to have strong policies in place, including, for example, a strong supplier code of conduct, which is tied to a contractual obligation and includes some sort of assurance program. So where I work, Hewlett Packard Enterprise, we work through the Responsible Business Alliance, and our code of conduct is based on this industry association, the Responsible Business Alliance, where we require all of our suppliers to agree to that code, in addition to many of our other policies, including a global human rights policy. And then we have an assurance program that audits our suppliers to make sure that they are complying with those requirements. And so that's absolutely critical. In addition, there are these other issues, for example, that not everyone thinks of in terms of human rights of end use of a product. So HPE recently launched an AI ethics initiative and released a set of AI principles to guide us in dealing with that complicated issues, which can have human rights related implications. And so I think that that's really the basis for kind of corporate governance around these issues. We also need a lot of support because there's so much going on and there's often complicated questions that come up. And I want to say also there are a lot of related areas that I don't think we can get into here, but that can have EJ implications, including things like circular economy and the transboundary movement of waste. And so I'm going to give a shout out to Hillary, to your law firm where you work, and to some of your colleagues like Stacey Halliday, Lauren Hopkins, Julius Redd, Megan Morgan, Russ Lamont, Paul Hagen. And I know it sounds like an advertisement, but I promise I was not asked to say that. <laughs> but it's really critical to have the support of folks outside of the company to help guide us in some of these difficult decisions, folks who are tracking specific developments and can give us kind of tie together 
some of the thread from different jurisdictions that we may or may not be aware of and also give us some insight how maybe some of our peer companies are dealing with these issues. And as I mentioned, in addition, being involved with industry groups like the Responsible Business Alliance, working with peer companies, for example, we do this at Digital Europe so that we can discuss kind of common issues that apply and to see where we are at in comparison to other companies. For where I work at HPE, you know, we strive to lead on a lot of these issues, but with a lot of these emerging regulations and some of the requirements that are already in place, like the modern slavery disclosure obligations and conflict minerals disclosure obligations under Dodd-Frank, all of which, again, have ties to EJ, I think. It can be a lot. And so without currently any harmonization, which I can talk more about later, I think from a governance perspective, it's really important to have strong policies and to have a really strong understanding of the landscape, both in terms of regulations, in terms of customer and investor expectations, and in terms of, from a reputational standpoint, many of the NGOs and benchmarks that are looking at companies and making sure that what is being said matches up to the actual facts on the ground. That's great. Thank you so much, Jesse. And thanks for the free advertisement. It's great to know that when you're in private practice, some of the work we do is helping leaders like you advance the ball on these issues. So that's personally quite meaningful to me. One last question, and then I think we can wrap things up. And you did touch on this a bit just now, Jesse, but I wanted to make it a little bit more express. So Corporate ESG disclosure requirements in the U.S. have becoming have been becoming much more demanding, um, and, and this has also been happening in the EU. Are these requirements changing at all in how they relate to international environmental justice issues? <clears throat> yeah, I think in some ways, I guess I'll touch on the harmonization point first and then get more specific, but... So the SEC is currently in the process. They released their proposed rule for climate-related disclosure, and that's undergoing comments right now. And then in the EU, through the Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive, they are implementing through EFRAG a set of regulations for non-financial disclosure. And in Europe, there's this concept of double materiality, which very much relates to, I think, EJ. It's the need to cover not just the risk to companies, which is classic disclosure for financial disclosure, but also the impacts of companies on society and the environment. So arguably, in theory, that could include things like siting of manufacturing operations and some of the other issues we've we've talked about here related to human rights, which I think is kind of yet to be seen what these disclosures will look like. But I think there is a concern from companies, and I think it's a valid concern in terms of the fragmentation of these requirements and that there is a need for harmonization, that for companies to focus on actually doing the programmatic work and implementing something like emissions reductions, it's important not to have fragmented standards. And I think this is true as well with the supply chain, the mandatory supply chain due diligence proposals. It's important that there's some sort of set of regulations 
And a lot of us were hoping that would come out of the EU so that their companies are not inundated with administrative burdens, but instead can actually focus on the work itself. And some of that goes to, I think, these questions of stakeholder engagement, for example. The less time and resources spent on administrative burdens, the more time and energy can be spent on stakeholder engagement and implementing standards and different forms of engagement that I think can result in better results that are the goal of these regulations. Thank you. That's helpful and and insightful. Um, So I think we're just about at time, but before we wrap up, I want to thank both of you for joining us today for this conversation and just ask briefly if there's anything else you'd like to share with our listeners about these issues, anything burning on your mind that you think folks should know about. I'll turn to Achinti first. Thanks, Hillary. I might just say something quickly just to respond to some of the comments that Jesse just made. I think there is something to be said about companies who approach the current international landscape of rising regulations as a good challenge rather than a bad challenge. And it's really great to hear some of HP's recent efforts in that respect. I think Jesse's point about harmonization is so crucial for companies to see this as a good challenge. One of the, I would like to think that the UN's legally binding instrument on business and human rights that's currently being developed is one of those opportunities right now to provide some of that harmonization. It is responding directly to some of the international environmental justice issues that have come to the fore in the context of corporate activity. So, and if it is passed, it will mean that states have to implement measures that apply to businesses, including things like the mandatory human rights due diligence laws and disclosures. Of course, it's also intended to align with some of those existing non-binding standards that Jesse mentioned in relation under the UN guiding principles on business and human rights. Now, no companies would not be bound to this treaty, but states are. And businesses will be bound by obligations that have been implemented by the national laws. And so if we can get a good number of countries that are committed to this, we can try and start reaching that harmonization that Jesse was hoping for. There's a lot of opportunity here coming up for companies to really contribute positively to addressing environmental justice issues on an international scale. And I'm very excited to excited about that. That's great. Thank you so much. Jesse, anything else you want to share with our listeners before we wrap? No, I just want to echo, I think, what Ajinti just said in terms of this being a time of, though there's a lot of uncertainty, I think as I started out by saying in just one year, the amount that has happened in this space, I think it's an exciting time. And I think there is a lot of opportunity. And I think there are a lot of companies that are not only willing, but excited to be at the table. And so I think there is a lot of opportunity for the public-private partnership to move forward on some of these issues like climate change and forced labor, and then lots of different issues related to environmental justice in a way that can both better our society and also create benefits for businesses as well. Got it. Well, thanks again to both of you for being here. This has been a great conversation. I think our listeners will benefit greatly from hearing your insights. So thank you again. Thank you, Hillary. Thanks, Jesse. I really appreciate the invite. Thank you both. Great to be with you.
thank you for tuning into this episode of Ground Truth. Brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities. Founded on the rule of law. And Beverage and Diamond, a national firm specializing in environmental law. We would like to hear from you. So please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at ELI.org. To learn more about ELI, visit www.eli.org. For more on Beverage and Diamond, visit bdlaw.com.